Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Yeah, I'll take that. That was good. That was good. Um, so, uh, Rebecca, I think you're, you're reading from the ESV. So I'm actually reading from the CSB, so some of the terms might be a little different, but that's okay. Uh, we'll unpack Hebrews 12, and we'll yeah, just hear what the Lord has to say for us. But yeah, here we are, the last Sunday of August. And in fact, it's the last Sunday of the summer, if you can, if you can believe that. For the past 10 weeks, we've been going through a summer series, uh, and I've had the luxury of finishing us off on everyone's favorite subject, discipline. Oh, there's the nervous laughter. <laughs> now, straight out the gate, I just want to, to, to define discipline. So when I say discipline, I want you to think training, all right? Discipline, training, discipline, training, and I'll explain this a bit more as we go. But here's what we're not going to do today. We're not going to talk about how to do church discipline. I'm not going to give you a 10-step plan on, on how to implement discipline. This isn't a blueprint or, or a white paper on the processes and procedures of church discipline. No, I want to talk about something much more uncomfortable. I want to talk about why we need to stop running from discipline and instead embrace it. We, we got to stop convincing ourselves that we don't need it when our souls actually depend on it. And I'll be the first to admit, no one likes discipline. No, sorry, let me correct myself. Everyone loves discipline, as long as it's not them being disciplined, right? Everyone loves it as long as it's not them. And so if there's anything I want you to take, a home, or take home today is this. Discipline, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uncomfortable, yes. Painful, yes. But it's not a bad thing, especially when it's from our Heavenly Father. Now... There are, there, there are negative aspects to discipline, but when you look at it from the perspective of a loving Heavenly Father, and, and you start to see that what he, he does what He does for a reason, you get a better appreciation of why we need discipline and why we need to embrace it. And so in light of all that, I don't have like this you know, four-point sermon that I'm preaching or three-point sermon, no. I got four questions I want to answer as we, as we weave through Hebrews 12. So four questions that we're going to cover. First, what is discipline? If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. Why do we need it? What's the end goal of it? And why should we embrace it, yeah? So what is discipline? Why do we need it? What is the end goal of it? And why should we embrace it? Now, before I go any further, I want us to... Just come into Hebrews 12 and get some background info on it, because although I want to talk about why we need to embrace discipline, there's a specific situation that's happening here uh, that not too many people think about when it comes to discipline. See, most people, when it comes to discipline, they think of terms of like, this, this thing has happened, I have done this thing, and it wasn't right, and also, so that thing needs to be corrected, right? But in Hebrews 12, the, the church is being disciplined through no fault of its own. It's being disciplined through no fault of its own. They're being disciplined because of the sins of others. God is using the suffering and the persecution that the Hebrews 12 church is going through as a means to discipline them and strengthen them and make them more into the image of God. And now you might be thinking, so Matt, okay, <laughs> you're telling me that, I don't know, hypothetical situation here. I'm walking out uh, through Bowering Park and, and someone starts to berate me and, and call me out because I believe in Christ. Again, hypothetical situation. 
and that through that, God could be using it to discipline me or train me to be more like him? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That God can use our suffering and persecution to strengthen us and to make us look more like him. And here's the, here's the challenge for us. As we look at Hebrews 12, if we bring in this preconceived idea that discipline equals bad, then we'll miss the point of the passage. Now, yes, discipline hurts. It, it does. There's no doubt about that. I'll talk more about it in a bit. But discipline, at least as it's from God, it's always for his glory. Discipline, when it comes from God, is always for his glory, and it's for our good. So let me ask the question. What is discipline? Like I mentioned earlier, discipline is about training. Discipline, training. Don't forget that. Now, it can look like a lot of things. You, you can... So you can teach someone a concept all you want, for example, okay? So you can teach someone a concept all you want. You can teach them until the cows come home and never train them. You can teach them all you want but never train them, but you can never train someone and not teach them. Case in point, the Karate Kid, 1984. No, this is is like pre-Cobra Kai for everyone who was born in the last, you know, you guys know, I hear you laughing. The Karate Kid, Danny Russo, Mr. Miyagi, and he's, all, he's learning this technique, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off, over and over and over again. And Danny hates it. All he ever does is wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. But as Mr. Miyagi was teaching him this, it was never about this ridiculous motion of wax on, wax off. It was always about preparing him for the day when the attacks would come. And they did, if you know how the Karate Kid movies went. His training kicked in. His discipline kicked in. And he wasn't beaten to a snot. Or how about Usain Bolt, all right? Do you think he enjoys that he is or that he was? I don't know if his record has been beaten. Do you think he's enjoying that he's the world's fastest man? Probably. Do you think he enjoyed the hours and hours of training that went into it? No, probably not. Or what about the Marines, all right? The Marines, they have a phrase, you'll bleed in training so you don't bleed in battle. You'll bleed in training so you don't bleed in battle. They will say, you'll go through something called hell week. That's a legit thing. We'll train you and we'll discipline you so that when you go through the suck, that's what they call it, that's what war is. When you're in the middle of the battle, your training might actually save your life. You see, there's this, positive and there's this negative aspect of discipline. It's for our good, but man, man, it's not fun getting there. So when I talk about discipline in Hebrews 12, the the pastor here in this chapter is talking about being trained up in the Lord through suffering so that you can share in his holiness. That's verse 10. Or when you look at verse 11, so that you may yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So again, and I'll, I'll keep saying this, discipline is training. Discipline is training. It's for our growth and maturity in Christ. In fact, think of it like this. When you make a profession of faith in Christ, there are a lot of spiritual lessons that we learn. Yeah? It's a given. God teaches us those lessons, but a time comes when God says, go. Go take what I've taught you and learn and be trained Go into the world, experience all the ups and downs, the battles, the suffering, the persecution. We are ultimately practicing, we're being trained, we're being disciplined for the next great spiritual lesson. 
eternal life. But discipline can also come in a number of forms. And I think it's, under, I think it's important to understand uh, what these forms look like because it helps build a picture. So check this out, all right? Discipline happens usually in one of two ways. Either corrective discipline or formative discipline. It's either corrective or it's formative. And I'll, let me explain it like this. So formative discipline is like eating right. It's like exercising. It's like doing things to your body that would prolong your life. But corrective discipline is like having open heart surgery because you ate too many Big Macs. And I like Big Macs. Or it's like this, okay? If, I, if I'm walking by Judah's room, my, my two-year-old, and I see his room as an absolute pigsty, I'm going I'm to pull him aside and I'm going to teach him where to put his toys. I'm going to instruct him. I'm going to teach him where to put his toys and I'm going to teach him the importance of cleanliness and tidiness. That's corrective discipline. But if in a few days I walk by and I see his room is in a state, I'm going to pull him aside and I'm going to remind him of my teaching and have him clean up because he hasn't learned from my teaching. And so I've got to train him multiple times over and over and over again to reinforce the teaching. That's formative discipline. Formative discipline is usually the long game approach. And as a parent, oh man, sometimes that's all I feel like I ever do. Stop chewing with your mouth open. Brush your teeth. Take that bag off your head. No, you cannot put a fork in the light socket. And we've all been there. How many of us have grown up hating when mom and dad would discipline us? But now as adults, we're like, ah, now I understand why. I mean, do you ever think in the moment, there's a reason why you answer the phone the way you do? Or how you address your elders? I'm not talking about the elders of Calvary, but people who are older than you. Or even how you address the elders in Calvary. That's the fruit of discipline. This is why the Lord says, train up your children in the way they should go, so that when he grows old, he will not depart from it. But discipline can also be preventative. It can be preventative. Let me give you an example. So when, when um, construction crews go in and they want to you know, clear trees for a new development, they'll go in with their machinery and they'll start clearing all these trees, but what they'll find is that uh, some of the big trees fall just as easily as the smaller trees. And the reason why that is because the smaller trees that surround the big trees shield the big trees from the wind, the rain, the natural elements, mother nature, whatever you want to call it. And so in that way, the, although the, the trees are big, their trunks are really weak. They haven't been exposed to hardship, if you will. And this is why, and, and hear me when I say this, this is why sometimes God regularly allows us to go through seasons of difficulty. That's Hebrews 12. He does it so that we can be strengthened and that we don't easily fall in the face of suffering. In other words, one of the reasons why you might be going through a hard time or why you might be encountering persecution or, or suffering is not only strengthen you, but to ground you in Christ, to, to magnify your vision of the Lord and to prevent you from being given over to other sins. Why do you think Paul could say in Philippians 4, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself in. He understood that life was brutal. Out there, it's not easy. It's not a cakewalk. But God's love is so much more than anything he could ever encounter. He understood that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, nor depth, or any other created thing would be able to separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, his Lord. He knew that there was a purpose in the storm. He could find joy knowing, as Peter would remind us, that there's this light momentary affliction happening all around us that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Maybe life is hard now. Maybe it is. Maybe you're going through the ringer, but maybe God is actually training you in righteousness so that someday, so that someday when you walk before him, you'll be walking fully in sync with him. Because like big trees, sometimes we need a bit of turmoil in our life to strengthen us in the battle. Now, I've purposely skipped over verses one to three. I'm going to come back to them in a bit, but I want you to listen to what the pastor says here so now, when I keep saying pastor, this is a sermon to, that a pastor's preaching to his church. So I'm preaching a sermon about a sermon, if that's, yeah. But look at what he says in verses four. He says, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart. When you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. So endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I think if I were to ask most of us, why, why, why would you be disciplined? Why would you be disciplined? I, I think a lot of people would, would give me some like, personal internal reasons. You know, I did this, or I did that, or, or I, I sinned in this way, or something along those lines. You see, for a lot of people, you know, they look at discipline as something internal, something that happens as a result of an action they did. And you wouldn't be wrong in saying that. That's absolutely correct. But the writer of Hebrews also highlights something that I don't think we readily consider. And I, I already mentioned this, but God can and does use discipline or discipline us through our suffering and pain. And here's where I think a lot of people get caught up. Because when it comes to discipline, they, they equate that with, with a, being a bad thing. Discipline is a bad thing because it hurts, right? Now, when I get disciplined, it hurts emotionally, you know, maybe mentally, my pride is hit. And so there's this, there's this negative aspect, there's this painful, this, this hurt element of, of discipline. So let me give you an example, but it's not always bad. Let me give you an example. So let's say I go and lift weights tonight, which is not going to happen, but it's just an illustration. <laughs> I'm going to go lift weights tonight. My, arm, my arms are going are, are to be sore tomorrow. Muscles will have torn. The pain receptors are going crazy. And my brain is going to say, stop doing that. Go eat a Big Mac instead. But the pain is good. The pain is good when you're lifting weights, when you're working out. It hurts, but it's good. And sometimes God uses the pain of suffering to discipline us, to train us. He takes the negative aspect of it and uses it for our good. So when he says, in struggling against uh, sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, he's not talking about your sin. He's talking about the sins of others. I mean, that would be weird. Imagine, you know, you call up Pastor Steve and you're like, hey, Steve, can, can, I, can I meet you today? I really got to talk to you about something. And you're like, hey, pastor, man, I'm, I'm really struggling with the sin of favoritism. 
And he's like, well, you're not dead yet. You're not a martyr. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the ground. I, I don't see your blood anywhere. Well, you mustn't be struggling that bad. You'd always be like, here, Pastor Steve, here's, here's your Pastor of the Year award, right? But in the first century, the Hebrew Christians, they were actually experiencing all sort of persecution under the emperor, but not only under the emperor, but under their fellow Jews. This community was being threatened and mocked and I would say beaten, intimidated, all because they believed in Jesus, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, I'm not diminishing, you know, uh, suffering or pain. That's not what I'm doing, but there will come a time for the church, and, and it is now where people will start to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. But this is an audience who, at the root, are doubting God's love for them. Why would God allow them to suffer and be, and, and be persecuted? And it's a valid question. It's one that we wrestle with every single day. But he's reminding them to stand firm in the Lord. He's saying, God hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. His love for you hasn't disappeared. Just because life isn't turning out the way you want it doesn't mean that his love has, some, has somehow ended, that he's pulled his hand off of you. Like the pastor here, he's being firm, yes, but he's also being extremely loving in his encouragement. He's pointing them back to these beautiful words from Solomon, the wisest man in Israel, to his own son in Proverbs 3. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly, or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And I think we really need to wrestle with what the pastor is saying here. There exists today in the modern Western church an apathy for the word of God. The reason why this church community, and I believe a lot of us have a hard time with discipline, whether through suffering or persecution or through other believers of the church, it's because we've forgotten the word of God. We've forgotten that God can use hardships and suffering and persecution to discipline us. You see, we all want the benefits of Christ, but we don't want to spend time with him. I'm too busy. I've had a long day. I like my sleep. I'm on vacation. I have too many papers to write this semester. I'm exhausted. If we aren't spending time in the Word, then what hope do we have when the trials come? What hope do we have when sin abounds? Like, we don't need fresh revelation. We don't need a new Word from God to get us through the hard times. We have revelation. We have the Word of God to get us through life's difficult seasons. How can you ever find joy in the trials if you never know why the trials are there? James reminds us in, his, in the first chapter, so does Peter. Bookmark it. Go read it. How can you ever resist the flaming arrows of the evil one if you don't know why, or if you don't know that there's spiritual armor to equip? That's Ephesians 6. How can you ever put sin and temptation into its proper bucket if you don't know that Satan is like a roaming lion looking for someone to devour? Or how can you ever resist sin if you never know that Jesus will always, 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 always provide a way out? That's 1 Corinthians 10. Like, I'm not being a legalist here, Calvary, but brothers and sisters, I plead with you. There's nothing more important than spending time with Jesus. It will only ever do you a world of good to just carve out 15 minutes in the day to spend time with him because that, those 15 minutes may actually be preparing you for a greater battle ahead in the day. I mean, consider this. In the winter, 
we might start our car, remote start, or go out and sit in the car for 10 or 15 minutes to let it warm up so that it can go on. And we do that because we know that if we take off right away, we're probably going to do damage to the car, to the engine. Like the oils have to, to, to warm up and lubricate stuff, and, and the engine has to go, uh, has to get to a certain temperature before it goes. Why not with us? Why not? There's 1,440 minutes in the day. Surely 15 minutes can be set aside for Christ. Take the words of Hebrews 12 and be disciplined by them. Allow the Spirit to, to work through you and convict you because we need discipline. And so that leads me to the next question. Why? Why do we need discipline? Two answers. Because we're sinners and in our sin, we need to be reminded that not only God loves us, but we are legitimate children of God. Listen to what he says in verse 8. He says, But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, God, does it for our benefit. Why? So that we can share in his holiness. So that we can share in his holiness. So before we go any further, I want, to, I want to tell you what the gospel is. I want to tell you what the gospel is. In the beginning, God created everything. And everything he created was perfect. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sin entered the world. And Greg Gilbert in his book, What is the Gospel? I'm going to do a quick plug on that. It's a fantastic book. If you, if you don't have it, I highly recommend it. He says, when God created human beings, his intention was that they would live under his perfect, righteous rule, worshiping him, obeying him, and thereby living under unbroken fellowship with him. God created us with the intent that we might live in perfect, unbroken fellowship with him. But we messed it up. We ate the fruit. We rejected God's authority and thought we could be better at being God. Unfortunately, that brought a death sentence. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. And this just isn't for Adam and Eve. This is all of humanity. This is why Paul writes in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. This is why Paul says in Romans that no one is righteous, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's why elsewhere he calls those who aren't in Christ enemies of God. If you aren't in Christ, you're an enemy of God. And you might be thinking, Matt, that's a bit harsh. No, it's not. It's the truth. The message of the gospel is too important to sugarcoat. We all deserve punishment. Before a holy, holy, holy God, we deserve hell. But God, those two beautiful words, but God gave a promise in Genesis 3 that a savior would, would come. He would crush the head of the serpent and he would undo all that we had done so many years ago. You see, the Bible is this overarching narrative of how God, as Gilbert explains it, made it right, how he is making it right, and how one day he will make it right finally and forever. And you might be thinking, well, Matt, that's great. That's, that's beautiful, but what does that have to do with discipline? Everything. 2,000 years ago, our sin was placed upon the shoulders of Christ. And just because Christ makes it right, uh, makes right what we made so long ago doesn't mean that we are free from sin. We all live in a sin-soaked world. You see that in Hebrews 12. 
Sin still affects every aspect of our lives, our decisions, our words, our thoughts, our relationships, everything. No one is perfect. And if you think that you are, you're not. Jesus is perfect. This church isn't perfect, but Jesus is. In fact, he's the source and perfecter of our faith. That's verse 2. He's the beginning of our faith and the end of our faith and everything in between. And until you go to be with him in glory, the work will never be complete. Jesus is the beginning and the end, but he's working in the middle until we get to the end. And you know what that means? It means there's work to be done. Like a diamond being refined through the fire is our faith refined through discipline and trials and suffering. Like one commentator says, if you're in Christ by faith, any pain you experience is the discipline of heaven, not the heat of hell. Now, why we discipline is twofold. I've briefly hinted at one, because we're sinners, and I'll come back to that in a second. But the second is because we need to be reminded that God loves us and we're legitimate sons and daughters of God. That's verse eight. But I'm gonna argue you can't call yourself a Christian, or better yet, you can't call yourself a son or daughter of the living God and not be disciplined. It's impossible. You can't. It, it just can't be done. This is why the writer says, if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children. If you are without discipline, you are illegitimate children. And he's not talking about children uh, born to unwed parents. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. A child of God will never be punished for his or her sins in church. You need to bury that down deep. It's got to go from here to here. A child of God will never, ever be punished for his or her sins because Christ was on their behalf. Nothing that we experience when you are in Christ will ever be punishment. Even corrective discipline, it may feel punitive. It may feel like it's punishment. It's not. A son or daughter will only ever be disciplined by a loving heavenly father, and that's it. Think of it like this. An illegitimate child or an unbeliever, okay, if his or her sin is called out, he laughs it off. Chalks it up to bad luck, you know, my sin or my behavior was, was, was caught out. But a true child of God, they experience this deep remorse over their sin. You see that with David in Psalms uh, 38 and 51. He was absolutely gutted with what happened between him and Bathsheba. And here's the thing. Unlike our earthly parents, our Heavenly Father disciplines us perfectly. And it's, and it's perfect because he knows everything about us. Everything. And being perfect, he knows how to administer perfect discipline according to our imperfections. And yeah, it's painful. It's absolutely painful. Like I said, everyone loves discipline. They just don't like to be disciplined themselves. And I really had to wrestle with this idea of discipline as I came to saving faith. I never had healthy male role models growing up. I had an abusive stepfather in my early teens, late teens, there was never any love that came from him. There was never any discipline. It was only ever punishment. It was only ever done to satisfy uh, some emotional high that he was having or assert his dominance or authority over me. It was never done with a purpose, but God does it with a purpose. When God disciplines us, he does it to improve us and to prove his love for us. And as that happens, we slowly start to share in his holiness and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness as you read in verse 11. 
Now I'm going to go on to the next question here. Uh, we're going to move along, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And so we've talked about what discipline is. It's training. From the eyes of God, it's done for a purpose. It's for his glory and our good. And we've talked about why we need discipline, because we're sinners, and in our sin, we need to be reminded and affirmed and have confirmation that we are loved by God and we are his legitimate children. And this brings me to the next question. What's the end goal of discipline? What's, what's the end goal of it? Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it, God, for our benefit. Why? So that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you catch that? What's the end goal of discipline? so that we could share in his holiness, verse 10, and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, verse 11. You see, there's a purpose. There's always a reason why God disciplines those he loves. If you want to think about it this way, just really simply, the end goal, if Christ is our righteousness, that's 1 Corinthians 1, then the end goal of discipline is to look more and more like Christ. And the big challenge for us as we go through discipline is to look at it in light of eternity, not just in the moment. I mean, yes, look at it in the moment, but there's an eternal perspective as to why God is disciplining us. And like I said, if, if he uses discipline to train us to walk in, in sync with him, then it only makes sense that he uses it to train us in righteous thought, word, deed, action, behavior, everything, because we're going to look more and more like Christ the more we're disciplined. And, and the closer we draw to Christ, the, the more we will look like him. And the more we look like him, the more we'll be, we'll be made aware of our sin. And when that happens, your mind will be transformed. That's uh, Romans uh, 12. And your faith will be strengthened. So there's a purpose to it. There's an end goal for why God disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness and we may display the righteousness of God all the days of our lives. And as we run this race, don't miss this. All right? As we run this race in life and we're disciplined and we encounter suffering and persecution and trials and, and all the ups and downs that, that come with life, we don't do it alone. We don't. That's what chapter 11 in Hebrews is there for. It's to show us that people have also run the race. There's this great list of the, of the giants of the faith all in chapter 11. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, by faith, by faith. And so when you're struggling with faith and, and you're, you're just being brought through the ringer with discipline, look, look at theirs. Take note of theirs. When we are feeling pressed in, look at the pressure they faced. When our legs are weak, and our endurance is being tested, be encouraged because they endured. Not because, of, not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus is. And it's Jesus, not them, that the writer of Hebrews points us to. Look at verse 12. So strengthen your tired hands and weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. And as you do that, verse 2, go to the top. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, or right hand of the throne of God. This is why we can run the race. This is why we can find strength to run. 
This is why we need to openly and willingly embrace discipline in whatever form it comes. Now, in the context of Hebrews 12, when we are encountering suffering and persecution, embrace it as discipline because Christ suffered more. Christ was persecuted more. Because of this, we can run the race with confidence. We can. We can run the race with strength and hands and knees knowing that our Savior has not only run it, but he runs it with us. So embrace discipline, whether it's through the church, through other brothers and sisters around us, through the word of God, or through trials and tribulations and the ups and downs and persecution and suffering. Run the race with full confidence, knowing that through it, God is training you. He's maturing you and making you look more and more like Christ. Because the whole message of Hebrews is this. Christ is superior and he is. He's better than the angels. He's better than all the earthly sacrifices. He's better than all the earthly priests. And if he's better than all of these, which he is, then his discipline is also better. So when your hands are tired and your knees are weak, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but man, Hebrews 12 is a challenge. Oh, you know, when, when John was uh, praying earlier and he was talking about difficult passages, you know, we, we had sat down earlier in the summer before the summer and planned out who was going to preach each, each topic. And in I, some ways I felt like I got the short end of the stick. I'm like, all right, discipline. All right, Lord, here we go. Whew. So friends, family, visitors, where do we go from here? What do we do with Hebrews 12? Let, let, me, let me keep it real simple for us. Just going to end off here. As I land this plane, let me, let me give you some real, uh, just down-to-earth practical implications of why we as, as church and as believers need to embrace discipline. First, because it's good for us. I already mentioned this, but it not only reveals sin in our lives, but it confirms God's love for us and our legitimacy as his sons and daughters. Second, it's, it's good for the church. Discipline can be a real teaching moment, whether it's congregation-wide or it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's a real teaching moment to say, hey, here's the parameters of, of what sin looks like in obeying the word of God, and here's what happens when you step off the path. So it's good for the church. And third, it strengthens us and causes us to trust in God. Again, think about that tree trunk analogy, the big tree and then the small trees around it. And lastly, we need to embrace discipline because it's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. Mark Dever in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, says it like this. He says, the most compelling reason to embrace discipline is because God fashioned a people to bear his image so that their character might better approximate his own. You see, Christians are supposed to be conspicuously holy, not for our own reputation, but for the glory of God. <laughs> so, if you're in the middle of being disciplined, if this sermon disciplined you, praise God, or if you encounter it in the future, in whatever form it comes, then no one find peace in this. There's a purpose for it. God will have a holy people to reflect his character. So run the race 
with your eyes fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for difficult passages. This is a subject, Lord, that I struggle with. And I would say a lot of people struggle with this as well. But if there's anything, Lord, that I'm reminded from this text is that you are good, you are God, and you love us. So, Lord, quite simply remind us that discipline is for your glory and it's for our good. It's to mature us, Lord, to make us look more and more like your son, that we might reflect and share in your holiness and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness all the days of our lives. Lord, be glorified. Work through your church. Work through us as believers, Lord. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.